0: Well, good morning, it's great to be with you to sing together, to pray together, hear God's word together. We're gonna end our service today by commissioning a sent one, which is always a special time. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter six. 1 Timothy chapter six, and we are in part three of a series we've called, I'm good, not really. The idea is that we live in a place that looks pretty good on the outside, Walk up to people and you ask them, how you doing? They say, I'm good. But often, often under the surface, there's a lot of challenges that need to be addressed. And we're going to look at that today through First Timothy chapter 6. In 2013, there was a teenage young man named Ethan Couch, 15 or so. Ethan made a lot of destructive decisions, grew up in a very privileged household, got hooked on drugs, alcohol. He had stolen a bunch of beers from a Walmart, was driving down a road in near Fort Worth, Texas with a buddy of his, and at the same time, a woman and her daughter had, had a flat tire. They pulled over, and a Good Samaritan, actually a student pastor in the Fort Worth area, pulled over to help him with along, along with another passenger. Ethan did not see them in his drunken state and slammed right into that car, killing all four of those individuals. He stood before a judge in Tarrant County and his defense attorney claimed that Ethan suffered from something called affluenza. Now that's a term that was used by psychologists to talk about some of the dangers and deceptions that come by living in an affluent household. And they claim that Ethan had, was unable to make decisions around right and wrong based on his affluence, and he was given 10 years of probation because of that claim. We all push back against that thinking that's ridiculous and are a little bit shocked in that you could get away with that. But all of us, to some degree, struggle with affluenza. We live in a very affluent culture, a very affluent part of this city. A lot of us have means. And the Bible has a lot to say about money, about those who are wealthy. I I told you a few weeks ago that the demographics said that if you live here in the East Cobb, North Atlanta area, you are part of the power elite. I mean, look at all the elite people around you right now. Well, 1 Timothy 6 is a word written to people who had financial means. And I think it's a wonderful passage that gives us instructions of what to do with those means. So whether you're a teenager, you're an older adult, anywhere in between, I think this is a very instructive passage to us. And I'd like for, to read it with you, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Please stand as I read God's word for you, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19, 17 through 19. And this is what Paul, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to a bunch of rich people. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Father, we're gonna dive right into a subject that a lot of us are uncomfortable with today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word and to do what only you can do, which is to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to use your word, to train us in the righteousness that you desire us to have in our life. And God, I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice in our ears, especially on this topic of affluence and wealth and money. We give this time to you, Father, and we ask that you'd speak to us, and we'll pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a text that deals at length with issues of money. One of the reasons that Paul brings this up, writing this originally to Timothy, who was the pastor of a church in Ephesus, is because there were some false teachers who had come in and they were teaching that religion is a pathway to getting a lot of money. And we can all think of Teachers and preachers today who would suggest the same, that if you're faithful, if you're faithful to God and obedient to him, that he will give you wonderful riches and resources on this earth. Now, Paul says in this chapter that, that godliness, same word for religion, godliness is a great gain when understood properly with the contentment in God that comes. And so he deals early in the chapter with opponents, but here in verse 17, he's dealing with allies. When he talks about these people with means, these are Christians, friends, allies, are not not opponents. So he's talking to rich people. And I thought, if he's gonna talk to rich people, I should take the advantage to talk to you rich people. Now, let's be honest, we struggle with that term. If I were to ask you, all right, everyone who's rich, raise your hand right now. Like everyone who, you know, no one in here feels comfortable doing that. And it's often because we compare ourselves to people around us. We don't think about how our finances stack up to people around the world. And you know, like I do, that compared to a lot of places in the world where people are barely getting by, people don't have food for today. People don't have clothing. They don't even have a clean drinking water. We all know intellectually that we are the rich people, that we are the wealthy people. And technically, being rich means that you have more than you need to survive. But in case you're not convinced, I thought I'll give you a little help just to convince you that you are filthy rich because you filthy power elite people you suffer from first world problems, don't you? I mean, for instance, these are some of the things that you probably suffer through on, on a daily basis, maybe even more times than one. Like for instance, like when you have to do a software update that requires you to restart your computer, that's a first world problem. Poor cell coverage, it's a first world problem. Phone battery dying or what you might consider low battery anxiety, that is a first world problem. Your treadmill is broken, so you have to run outside. That's a problem. You can't find your AirPods. That is a first world problem. You get a bad haircut. You have to watch ads on YouTube. Are you kidding me? First world problem. Your package took more than 24 hours to get to your house. First world problem. You've got a closet full of clothes and nothing to wear. Amen. Men. All right. Just kidding. All right. First world problem. Or, or you've got a fridge full of food and nothing to eat. First world problem. You have to pay money. I mean, think about this. You have to pay money for this storage facility to keep all the stuff that you can't put in your already stuffed house. First world problem problem. You're frustrated, they keep calling you about your car insurance, first world problem. You got blisters because of your new shoes, first world problem. You have to sit next to a child on an airplane, first world problem. There's this long line at the coffee shop and they misspelled my name on the cup, first world problem. You've got a chip fingernail with that polish and how about this? I mean, look, one pillow is too low, two pillows way too high, first world problem. You're running out of hot water, first world problem. You can't decide what Netflix show to watch, first world problem. And this is probably the worst. It's Sunday. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. Oh, wait a minute. It's Sunday. First world problem. You filthy rich people. If, if you suffered with any of those and more, this text is talking to you. Now we're uncomfortable with it and we don't like it. And some of you are thinking, are you kidding me? You're gonna talk about money. Pastor, do you know how many weeks I've invited this friend to come to church and they finally came on this Sunday, you're gonna talk about money? Yes, and you're welcome. <laughs> the Bible talks a lot about money. Let me just say this right here at the beginning. There is no big ask today. Not a big time where you, you, know, you come down front and give all this cash away. Not asking for that, but I do want us as wealthy people, which most of us are, me included, we need to have a theology of our wealth, an understanding from God's point of view about how we handle our finances. So whether you work a minimum wage job or you make seven figures, we need to understand how to handle wealth. and and we struggle to admit it at times. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about money in one of those chapters, and he, he recalled this, being a pastor in Manhattan, a very wealthy place, he says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spent too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. No one's ever said that. And and I love this line at the end. He said, greed hides itself from the victim. So whether you struggle with affluenza or just good old fashioned greed, money has a way of capturing our heart like very few other things. And I think that's why God talks so much about money in the Bible. So Paul here in 1 Timothy 6 is talking to rich Christians, helping them to understand both the burdens and the benefits of being a rich Christian, and we would do well to pay attention and to do the same. So let me give you this big principle. It's very obvious, simple to understand, but it has a lot to do with how we think about money, particularly those of us who are wealthy, and that's most of you in this room. Here's the big principle of the day. Wealth is a stewardship and I'm accountable. If you're taking notes in your welcome guide or wherever you take notes, write that down. Wealth is a stewardship and I'm accountable. The goal today is not to make you feel guilty about being wealthy. I don't think you should feel guilty about being wealthy. But you should feel responsible for that wealth and how to handle that wealth according to God's will and his standard. That's the goal today, that we understand more. What does God want from me, a wealthy Christian, when it comes to how I view my finances? So we're gonna look at these three verses and I'm gonna give you six, either a benefit or a burden of being a wealthy person. So we're gonna start, the first two are burdens because in verse 17 it starts with two things not to do. So let's look at that. Number one, Write this down for number one. Don't be conceited. In verse 17, instruct those who are rich, that's you, in this present world not to be conceited. To be conceited is to be prideful, to use an old-fashioned word, to be haughty, to think more of yourself. And money has a tendency because we attach status and money to power and identity, It has a way of latching onto us that can make us think that we are more than we are according to God's view. And I love how Paul attaches his eschatology to it, his understanding of of the eternal world and and this world and the interplay between those two things. What do he say to those who are rich where? In this present world. Your richness in the way you think about it now may not extend into the eternal world, But some of you, for whatever reason, were born in affluent households, in an affluent community, and compared to the rest of the world, you are affluent. So you are right now rich in this present world, but be careful that you don't become conceited. There's a danger there. Go back in your Bible to uh, verse nine and 10, 1 Timothy 6, nine and 10. This is one of the more misquoted verses in the scriptures. He says this, countering some of these false teachings. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Does this text say money is the root of all evil? Does it say that? What does it say is the root of evil? The love. The love of money is morally neutral. There's not anything good or bad about money. But if you have a love for money, it can become an evil that can do several things. I love some of the word pictures here. It can become a trap. Think about an animal walking through the woods that steps into a trap. It can plunge you into ruin. Imagine going out into the middle of the ocean and you jump off a boat with a huge boulder tied to your ankles, you are going to plunge to the bottom of the sea. That's what he says a love of money can do to your life. And he says it can allow you to wander away from the faith. Two weeks ago, I told you the story of Naaman, remember? He was healed of leprosy, but I didn't tell you the whole story. If you keep reading 2 Kings chapter five, you're gonna also be introduced to a man named Gehazi. Now, when Naaman was healed, he offered an offering to Elijah the prophet as a way of saying, thank you to this God who has healed me. And Elijah told him, no, I don't want it. And instead of, or excuse me, Elisha. And, and Elisha's servant, Gehazi, when he heard about the offering, went and tricked Naaman, and Naaman gave the offering to him. And, uh, and because of his greed, he came back, and God judged Gehazi with leprosy as a judgment against his greed. Paul says to those of you who are rich, be careful because riches can allow you to become conceited. That's the first thing not to do. Here's the second burden he says, number two don't set your hope on money. Don't put your hope on money. Hope in the Bible is not just a wish. Man, I hope hope it doesn't rain today. That's how we view a wish. No, hope in the Bible is a confident expectation that God will do what he says he will do. And he says, don't put that hope, that confident expectation on money and wealth and riches and stuff. You know why? Because it is uncertain. He says the uncertainty of riches. I'm sure in your life, at some point, you have discovered, and if you haven't, you will, that money and possessions and wealth, it's all uncertain. Whether you see it in the stock market, some of you, 2007 and 8 in the financial crisis, discovered very quickly the uncertainty of riches, whether it's inflationary pressure that we're all experiencing today, or even just our stuff, think about the people in Maui and Hawaii over the last two weeks who discovered in a very horrific way the uncertainty of stuff. Paul says, don't don't set your help on the uncertainty of riches. There, There was an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that came out not too long ago called Broke. And in this documentary, they reveal how 80%, I think it's like 78% of all professional athletes file for bankruptcy or go broke within three years of retiring from playing sports. 80%. Often because they don't know how to handle wealth and they put their hope on the uncertainty of things that are not certain. I think that's why Jesus said, hey, don't don't put your hope, don't put your money on earth where where moths can eat it and rust can destroy it, thieves can steal it. Don't don't do that, store it up in heaven. And we hear that, but man, don't we get trapped in the same thing? We let money provide something for us, only God can, and, and a lot of us struggle with greed. You, you probably remember the, the Wall Street movies that came out, was that in the 80s and 90s? They, they did one about 10 years ago. It's kind of a continuation of that, that series of movies. And there's this scene where there's this young trader, like a stockbroke trader, stockbroker. And, and, and he's, he's learning from the boss who's made all this money. And he, and he goes up and he asks him in the scene, he says, what's your number? And the boss what? He goes, what's your number? Everyone has a number. What's the number? If you make this amount of money, you'll just walk away from all of this. And the camera zooms in on the boss, and he simply says, more, more, and walks out. Greed has a way of capturing our hearts like very few other things. And the way we spend money is often a product of some deeper idol that's driving us. I gave you this picture a few weeks ago of the tree with the fruit and the root, you see this? The fruit is the behavior that you can see on the outside. So the way we spend money, save money, handle money, that's the fruit. But that's driven from a root, which is often some kind of idol that has captured our heart and that's manifesting itself in the way we handle money. And it can be different for everybody here. That's what's so scary. It's not like there's just one idol of greed that shows itself, but think about this. You can have an idol of comfort and so you, you spend your money either on ways to comfort you or you take great comfort in your bank statement and when money goes away, you lose your sense of security in life because your idol is comfort. Or maybe your idol is power and so you use money to leverage power over others. Maybe your idol is affirmation and so you, you buy all kinds of stuff so that you look a certain way in the eyes of others. How many times do we spend money simply to to impress others? I don't know who said this quote. I've seen it attributed to a bunch of people. So I'm just gonna take credit for it like I said it, but I love this quote. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like, amen? How many of us buy things we, we probably don't need with money we often don't have to impress people we don't like, I, I think that our massive credit card debts that we all carry are evidence of how we often let idols drive our spending and our saving habits. Don't set your hope, hope on the uncertainty of riches. All right, so here's the counter, this is kind of the positive, but here's the third thing I want you to write down. Set your hope on God. Verse 17, don't set it on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God is one who can be trusted to provide for our needs. Haven't you found that in your life? That God has provided for you? Maybe not in the way you wanted, maybe not in your time, God always provides. One of the Old Testament names of God is Jehovah-Jireh. We sing that song, Jireh, You Are Enough. That comes from Genesis 22, when Abram names the place where he was told to sacrifice his son. This is Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide, and we serve a God who provides And that's why he says, put your hope on God. Only God is worthy of your love. That's what we want. When you're you're converted and boarding into Jesus Christ, you are in love with God and your hope is in God and your eyes see the things that God sees and your heart should feel the things that God feels. and, And we are totally captured with the love of God, trying to be godly people because we have put our hope in God. When Jesus said in Matthew six, don't store up your treasures on earth, but store them in heaven. He, he gave this little image, I think it's so captivating. He says, right after that, he says, if your eyes are clear or good, your body's filled with light, but if they're not, they'll be filled with darkness. And then he says this interesting thing. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. I think what Jesus is saying there is that if you see money and life the way God does, you're filled with light. If your eyes are blinded and your hope is not on God, but the uncertainty of riches, your body's full with darkness. But he says, set your hope on God. That's where our real worth and identity comes from. Sometimes we throw out this you know, thing like someone's worth something. Like for instance, I looked this up this week about who, who's the richest person on the world, in the world, the wealthiest person in the world and I, I found this on the internet, so it has to be true, but this, this is what it said. I never heard this guy's name. Bernard Arnault. He owns several different luxury brands. He is worth $211 billion, billion. billion. And that's not to say he didn't work hard for it. As the old saying goes, the first billion is the hardest. Everyone knows that. But what we say is something like this, Bernard Arnault is worth $211 billion, but that is not true. He may have $211 billion, but he is not worth $211 billion, simply because God is the one who gives us our worth. Amen? God gives us our identity. What matters is what God says about us. So Paul says, don't set your hope on money, set it on God. Don't put your hope in, in money that comes and goes. Put your hope in God who stays. Don't put your, your money in hope that goes up and down. Put, put, your, put your hope in the God who is faithful. Don't, don't put your hope in money that can plunge you into ruin. Put your hope in a faithful God who gives you a secure foundation. And I love one of the qualifiers he gives in 1 Timothy. What does he say about God? God is one who richly supplies us with all things to what? Enjoy. We don't think about that, do we? Did you know, now this, I need to qualify what I'm about to say because it comes with lots of assumptions about how to handle money God's way. But did you know that if we handle God's money in the way he wants us to, And if we have stuff left over, you should enjoy it. You really should. Ecclesiastes chapter five says, furthermore, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also given him the opportunity to enjoy them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Yes, we should not put hope in the gift and we should put hope in the giver. But one of the ways that we glorify God is by enjoying what he's given us. Now, let's get to more, of the practical stuff. What do you do with your money? All right, number four. Notice what Paul says next. He says, be rich in good works. Verse 17 says that. Instruct them, who? Instruct the rich people, y'all, to do good and to be rich in good works. In other words, if you are wealthy, you have a platform, you have influence, you have resources, and because you have those things, and that's for mostly every person in this room, leverage it by being rich first in good works, good deeds. Let your life exude in serving others. When the Bible talks about good deeds, it often describes good deeds as those menial tasks like Jesus washing the feet of his servants, his disciples, in a way that demonstrate that you are a servant of the Lord. If you are a wealthy person, you should be the first to sign up to do the jobs, not so everyone applauds you or goes on social media or we name a building after you, but you recognize that everything that you have is from God and I wanna do everything I can to prove that I'm here to serve him and nothing else. Tony Dungy, who is the Hall of Fame football player and coach who coached the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, now the broadcaster. I'm told that when he lived in Tampa Bay, and he may still live there, I don't know, but when he was coaching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he was a member of Idlewild Baptist Church in the Tampa area. And it was said of Tony and his wife that when they were there on Sundays, you know where they served? In the nursery. Can you imagine dropping off your kid and the coach of your city's team is sitting there taking your kid? You'd be like, hey, could you sign his forehead? Could you do that real quick? You know. But I love that. Here, here's a man who loves Jesus and he says, look, I'm here to serve. You need me to serve in the nursery? I'll serve in the nursery. If you're the wealthiest pe- people in this church, you should be signing up first to do this menial task that no one else to do. Now, if you're wealthy enough to afford at your house a maid Someone to cut your yard to do those other things for you. Awesome, I don't think you have to feel guilty for it if you can afford it and bless them and help provide income for them, wonderful. But guess what, when it comes to the house of God, you're the maid, you're the servant. You're the one signing up to do the hard jobs, to wash the feet, be rich in good works. We're doing Move ATL this week, why do we do that? Because we need to be reminded at the end of the day, we are servants. We are servants, and I know I've said this a bunch of times, but I'll say it again, the best way to know if you are a servant is to see how you react when you're treated like one. Be rich in good works. Number five, write this down, be generous. Be generous. He says not only in 18 to be rich in good works, but then goes on to say, be generous and ready to share. That that word generous is a fascinating word, because it means something like this, if you were to translate it very literally into English, it would translate something like this: that you are good to give. You're, you're prepared, you're ready, you're eager to give, that we as people born again by the blood of Jesus, we we should be generous with what God has given to us, ready to give, knowing that, that, that God's given us more than we need and that we are accountable for the wealth that he has given to us. Giving is the great antidote to greed. Remember Zacchaeus? We little man, remember him? Radically had his life changed by Jesus. And what's the first thing he does? He gives. That's what happens when your heart is taken by God, and you're born again, and you're converted, and you receive the gift of salvation, you have a desire to want to give and to be generous, and God asks us to give. I don't have time to go through a whole theology of tithing and offering, but let me give you a very quick synopsis in the Old Testament, Abram tithes to Melchizedek, a tenth, tithe literally means a tenth. So he tenth to Melchizedek. Hundreds of years later, the Mosaic law comes and is codified all the rules and regulations for Israel regarding tithes and offerings. An offering is anything above a tenth, anything above a tithe. And in the New Covenant, Jesus, in Matthew 23, gets on to the Pharisees because they had made tithing such a legalistic thing and they had forgotten the heart behind it, but he never refutes the practice of tithing. And what you see in the New Testament is that 10% is really the floor of what Christians are called to do, to give back to the house of God and to serve those through their tithes, their tenths and their offerings, anything above a tenth. So that's why we ask you to give. I mean, every single Sunday, someone gets up here and says something like this, God has been generous to us, he asks us to be generous to him and to his people, and so you should give. So every week we say, hey, give to Johnsonferry.org. Back, there it is right there, you can see it right there. See, it pops up, even as I say it, it just pops up. It's the whole AI thing we got going on. Just kidding. <laughs> give, or you can give in the buckets at the end. But let me ask you a super uncomfortable question. And I'm going to ask you this question, and you need to know the answer to this question. You don't need to share this question with me. You don't have to share it with your neighbor. But you need to know the answer to this question. And by the way, the question I'm about to ask you, God already knows the answer to this question. And here's the question. I want you to think about the last two months, eight weeks-ish, last two months. Here's the question. What percentage of your monthly income is given to God. You don't have to share it with your neighbor, but you might want to write it down, put in your phone. You need to know the answer to that question if you're a believer in Jesus. And God already knows the answer. Now, let me give you a little secret. And this might surprise you. God doesn't need your money. God's not in heaven right now going, man, my 401k is struggling right up in here. Man, the inflation up here, the pavement, the gold, God, going up. God doesn't need your money. Generosity and the call to be generous is not something that God wants from you like he needs your money. It's something that he wants for you Because God recognizes that money has a grip on your heart like few other things, and only the grace of God and the salvation through Jesus and and the addiction-breaking power of the Holy Spirit can release your heart, be captivated by God. And it shows itself in how you give. And that's the kind of thing that we, as disciples of Jesus, need to always come back to. We need to teach it to our kids, or grandkids. One of the things I love to do every single week is I, I send a letter to the people of Johnsonville who gave a first-time gift. I don't know how much you give. I don't wanna know the amount. I just know that you gave. And so I send you a letter to say thank you for giving. It makes a huge difference. And one of the things I love to do is when I get a letter from a kid, or I get to send a letter to a kid, seven-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, who gave. I don't know if they gave 10 bucks, 100 bucks. I have no idea. But you know what I always think, beyond just gratitude for God, I think, way to go mom and dad. Way to go. Be generous and ready to share. And the last one, number six, goes with it. Invest in eternity, invest in eternity. Paul says this, echoing Jesus, as he said, to store up your treasures in heaven. Verse 19 storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly. Life. To take hold of that which is truly life. To take hold of something is to grab it, is to hold on to it, is to seize it. I think about that image in the movie when the guy falls off the cliff and all of a sudden his buddy's hand goes over the cliff and he grabs it, and he's holding on. The only thing keeping him above thousand feet of a fall to his death is the is the grip of that hand. And that's what that's what Paul says here. Live your life that demonstrates you are grabbing on to that which he says is truly life. Your career is not truly life. Your bank account is not truly life. Your spouse is not truly life. Your sports are not truly life. Your kids are not truly life. Your beauty, your power, we can go on and on. The only thing and the only one that holds true life is God. And he has sacrificed his life through Jesus Christ so that you could receive the gift of salvation when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and turn to him. And that's why Paul says, why do you spend so much time worried about temporary things that mean nothing in eternity? Spend your life and your money on the things that will last for all eternity. So we focus on the gospel. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's a wonderful way to talk about the gospel, that that Jesus gave up the privileges of of his godness, if you will, to come down to the earth in his incarnation, to get in a human suit and to be not only fully God, but fully man and to teach us the ways of God, but ultimately to die on the cross for our sins And to do all that was needed that our lives could be changed and redirected and refreshed and renewed and born again and the Holy Spirit could come inside of us. And when Jesus was was risen from the grave and raised from death to life, it gives us the promise that one day we will as well. And so what a wonderful way of saying the gospel is that God who is rich became poor for you so that you and your spiritual poverty could become rich in God. And that is the gospel if, if you walk out of here today and all you think of is a list of to-dos and not-dos, like I need to be better about saving, I need to be better about not spending, I need to be better about giving. But you miss this basic point. You have missed the whole thing. The, the generosity starts with an understanding of the gospel and flows from there. So Paul had to speak to those rich people to say, hey, you guys have some incredible opportunities, but you have some big challenges as well. And I just wanna say with love to you as your pastor, the same. Wealth is a stewardship. The point is not that you feel guilty about being wealthy. If you have worked hard or God just blessed you in spite of you, and you have all these resources at your disposal, that is awesome. Enjoy them, but also recognize that you are accountable for them and accountable for the life that you live in light of the gospel. I'll end with a quote by Randy Alcorn in his little book, The Treasure Principle, he says this, this is a good reminder. God prospers me, not to increase my standard of living, but to increase my standard of giving. That's a good line. I don't know what your next step is after a message like this, for some of you, it is to receive Jesus. And if you have never received the gift of salvation in Jesus, today is the day. Not to give your money to God, it's a day to give your heart to God. And we'd love to help you do that. For some of you, you need to think long and hard about, does your generosity match the generosity of God through Christ? Maybe there's some other next steps that you need to take. We would love as a church to help you to do that. But I want to I pray for you. I want to encourage you to go to one of our response teams. And then I want you to stick around for just a few more minutes. We're going to do a, a sent one commissioning. And if you do leave early, I know it's because you're running to get to the buckets to give. I, I get it. <laughs> and I'll judge you the whole way back. But let me, let me, watch. Let me just pray over you. And then we're going we're gonna to commission a sent one. Father, whew, we got through that. It's, it's a subject, God, that we just struggle to talk about because money grips us in ways that we are embarrassed to talk about. And, the, and it's like the more we get, Father, the bigger the struggle. Lord, I, I pray that we would live with a loose grip on the things that are uncertain and rather set our hope on God who has given us all things through Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's not saved, doesn't know you, has not been born again, God, would you do a miracle right now, change their life like Zacchaeus, change their life. And God, for those of us whose lives you have already changed, God, help us to obey and to enjoy and, Lord, to appropriately accept the burdens and the benefits that come from wealth. Lord, we thank you for the one that's about to come, that we get to pray for, because in many ways, it's an expression of our generosity to give for the mission, and we're grateful for that, Lord, that you do what only you can do, and we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.